Hey listeners, we're taking a break this week from our regular episodes, but we'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Crimes of the Centuries. While we're away, here's an episode from another fascinating true crime podcast from the Obsessed Network called Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. In this episode, Daisy looks at the tragic death of Kendrick Johnson. On January 11, 2013, the body of this 17-year-old high school student was found inside a vertical rolled-up mat in the gymnasium. Was Kendrick's death a terrible accident, or was it murder? Enjoy the episode. We'll see you next week. How does a perfectly healthy high schooler with no enemies end up dead in his own high school gym? How, as a parent, do you deal with the loss of your child, especially when the manner in which you're told they died seems impossible and is just so mind-bogglingly gruesome? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is sometimes like, whose ass do I have to kick? but who more often ends up with their own foot in their mouth. This week, I am sorry in advance, Kendrick Johnson. The devastating story of his bizarre death and the investigation around it. In 2013, 17-year-old Kendrick Johnson was a junior at Lowndes High in Valdosta, Georgia. He was a hurdler, a power forward in basketball, and something called a safety in football, which I'm going to go ahead and assume is not someone who stands on the sidelines of a football game and goes, this is a super dangerous sport. Please be gentle with each other. Anyway. On the morning of January 11th, 2013, Kendrick's mother, Jacqueline, was at the guidance counselor's office of Lowndes High looking for her son. He hadn't come home from school the day before, and he hadn't answered his phone. This wasn't normal behavior for Kendrick. According to his parents, Kendrick was a good kid with average grades. He was polite and had a sunny disposition. He was good with numbers and finances. His grandmother called him her peculiar grandchild because he was quieter than his brothers and sisters, which is like, okay, grandma, judgy much? Like, a kid can't be quiet without being weird? I'm pretty sure I never shut up when I was young, and let me tell you, if there's anyone who deserved to be called peculiar, it's me. It was definitely not normal for Kendrick to just not come home and not respond to calls or texts from his family. His mother knew something was wrong. When Kendrick still wasn't home by 12.30 a.m., and after driving back and forth between home and school to look for him, Jackie Johnson called the police to report her son missing. Now, Lord knows we have heard some awful responses from police to parents who report their children missing, right? Something vaguely judgmental toward the kid or the mom, or probably both. When Jackie Johnson called to report her son hadn't come home from school, the 911 dispatcher had this response. He's probably just out with some fast-tailed girl. (sighs) Okay, you know what? I'm going to skip the commentary on this one because we only have a half hour together, folks, and I could write a dissertation on this shitty-ass, sexist, backward statement. 
Like, where would I even begin? Anyway. Jackie waited up all night with her mother, Kendrick's grandma, worrying and praying. Kendrick's father was a truck driver and was out on the road that night. The police followed up with a phone call around 4.30 in the morning. The missing persons report had been officially filed. So, on the morning of January 11th, Jackie was at her son's school, probably hoping he had just spent the night at a friend's house and his phone died, and his friend's phone died, and his friend's parents' phone died, and then all the phones on the block died, because you would tell yourself anything to not think the worst, and then you'd do whatever you can to find them. At 8.30 a.m., Jackie was in the school guidance counselor's office. At that same moment in the gym, a student was walking on top of a row of rolled-up gym mats that were lined up vertically against the wall. Each mat stood almost seven feet high and three feet across, making a sort of makeshift walkway. Why anyone was allowed to walk on a seven-foot-high vertical rolled-up gym mat is anyone's guess, but... In one of the mats, the student saw what looked like feet, wearing Hanes socks. She called some friends over, and when they saw what she saw, one of them screamed. Lowndes High head athletic trainer Philip Piplow and one of the other coaches ran across the gym, pushed the mat over on its side, and a male's body tumbled out, along with blood and vomit. Piplow backed away. The other coach told the students to leave the gym. At that moment, back in the guidance counselor's office, the phone rang. The volume may have been a tad too high because coming from the other end, Jackie could clearly hear someone say they found a body in the gym. The guidance counselor rushed out of the room and Jackie sat there probably frozen in terror because in that moment, she just knew that body was the body of her son, Kendrick. When police and EMS arrived on the scene, they confirmed that the body in the mat was indeed that of Kendrick Johnson. Deputies now releasing the name of the student found dead at a South Georgia high school. Lowndes County Sheriff Chris Prine says Kendrick Johnson was found dead in the gym at Lowndes High School Friday morning. Kendrick was 17 years old. Kendrick Johnson's exact cause of death hasn't been determined yet. His body is scheduled for an autopsy on Monday. So how did a 5'10", 160-pound teenager end up upside down, dead, in a rolled-up gym mat? How in the world did he get in there? And why? The official answer to how Kendrick Johnson ended up dead inside a rolled-up gym mat, according to the FBI, is that Kendrick Johnson, like many of his classmates, stored things behind, underneath, or in the rolled-up gym mats. You might be asking yourself why they didn't just use their lockers. Turns out, at Lowndes High in Valdosta, Georgia, lockers aren't just free and available to all 3,000 students. Nope. If a student wanted the privilege of storing their things in a locker, they had to rent one. There's no information about this on the school's website, and it's not mentioned in their handbook. So I guess it's like first day of ninth grade, you show up and you're like, hi, where's my locker? And they're essentially like, give me your lunch money, kid. 
They also apparently charge for textbooks. And this is a growing trend in our country. Let me state that again for clarity. In this country, we charge children to learn. For whatever reason, Kendrick Johnson, who was good with numbers and finances, had either decided to spend his locker money on something more important or just didn't have enough money in the first place. Normally, the mats were stored on their sides, and kids would just tuck things inside them and then fish them out when they needed them. But over the holiday break, it seems, the mats had been lifted and placed vertically. According to the FBI's theory of how Kendrick died, most likely, he had put the shoes in the mat when it was laying down flat and came back to find that his shoes were now at the bottom of a vertical mat. The mats were heavy. Really heavy. It's not like he could have easily lifted it. Or it never occurred to him that what he was about to do would kill him. Whatever his motivation, Kendrick, according to this theory, then dove headfirst into the mat and got stuck and died. And despite how much I don't want to do this, it's probably important to explain how he would have died. According to North Carolina Chief Medical Examiner John Butts, first, of course, his blood would have rushed to his head, and... A few things could be going on. The abdominal organs could be pressing against the diaphragm, making it more difficult for the diaphragm to flatten. There could also be the matter of the tightness of the mat compressing the chest, which would do the same thing. And if his face were pressed up against the inside of the mat, then that could impede him from drawing in air. It could be a combination of those things. In this scenario, Kendrick's breathing eventually slowed until it stopped altogether. An autopsy done by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI, on May 5th found no blunt force trauma or significant injuries. The state reported upon initial inspection of Kendrick's body that he had died from positional asphyxia with no signs of foul play. But former FBI Special Agent Harold Kopis isn't so sure. In fact, Kopis thinks the GBI mishandled this investigation from the very beginning. You know those movies where a murder happens in a small town and the local cops just bungle everything from top to bottom and they have to bring in the big gun? Usually played by Tommy Lee Jones, who rips off his aviators and screams, Did y'all just get out of the police academy yesterday? That was my Tommy Lee Jones impression. This was like that according to Copus and the coroner assigned to the case. First of all, there was blood found on a wall near where Kendrick's body was discovered and on a pair of nearby gym shoes that weren't Kendrick's. Investigators determined it wasn't Kendrick's blood on the wall or on the shoe, but didn't go so far as to try to determine whose blood it was, which is questionable. Lord knows I'm no forensic investigator, but it seems to me if you find blood near a dead body, a healthy teenage dead body, you might want to figure out whose it is. If it doesn't belong to the victim, I don't know, maybe it belongs to someone who knows what happened to the victim? But the cops didn't seem to take unidentified blood as some kind of clue, which leads me to believe they assumed this was normal. 
And in an interview with CNN, a lieutenant with the sheriff's department said that they didn't think that the blood had anything to do with what happened to Kendrick. Okay, based on what exactly? He also said it looked like the blood had been there for quite some time. That, that doesn't worry you, Lieutenant Bob? It's just another Tuesday morning with blood on the high school walls? Like, is that so commonplace that they were really like, well, it's not Kendrick's blood and we're not going to bother to figure out whose it was? The bloody shoes weren't even collected for evidence, nor was the hoodie they found a few feet away. Also, the gym shoes that Kendrick was supposedly trying to retrieve were inches below his face on the gym floor, with no blood on them. Remember that when they discovered Kendrick's body, there was blood and vomit. Gravity is a constant. So if Kendrick was bleeding, how did it not get on the shoes that were directly below him? There was certainly blood on the floor, but the shoe itself somehow managed to remain miraculously clean right next to the blood? Bill Watson, the county coroner, wrote in a report on January 22nd. I was not notified this death until 1545 hours. The investigative climate was very poor to worse when I arrived on the scene. The body had been noticeably moved, the scene had been compromised, and there was no cooperation from law enforcement at the scene. Furthermore, the integrity of the evidence bag was compromised on January 13, 2013, by opening the sealed bag and exhibiting the dead body to his father. I do not approve of the manner this case was handled. Not only was the scene compromised, the body was moved. The integrity was breached by opening a sealed body bag. Information necessary for my lawful investigation was withheld. Unsatisfied with the way the scene was handled, Kendrick's family requested a second independent autopsy. This autopsy was conducted on June 15th by Dr. William R. Anderson with Forensic Dimensions in Heathrow, Florida. Dr. Anderson's findings show blunt force trauma to Kendrick's neck and soft tissue, which he claimed could not have been caused by Kendrick himself, but had to have been inflicted by someone else. And these findings were consistent with the report of initial patient care, written by EMTs with the South Georgia Medical Center Mobile Healthcare Service on January 11th, the day Johnson's body was discovered, which stated, bruising noted to the right side jaw. But perhaps more troubling than what was found on Kendrick's body was what was found inside Kendrick's body, or rather, what wasn't found. The independent autopsy requested by Kendrick's family, in addition to finding bruising supposedly not found in the state's autopsy, found something truly disturbing when they opened Kendrick's body. Where there should have been embalmed organs, instead they found crumpled up newspaper. GBI spokeswoman Sherry Lang told CNN the organs, quote, were placed in Johnson's body, the body was closed, then the body was released to the funeral home. Wrong, Sherry. What actually happened was that when the state conducted its initial autopsy, it was decided that Kendrick's organs were damaged by the position his body had been inside the mat, and so the organs were thrown away. 
talked about this before on the podcast, but what is it with people throwing away potentially important pieces of evidence? Bones? DNA? Organs? Has Marie Kondo infiltrated police departments? Don't throw it out. And really? Like, don't throw that out when it's a person's body. Put that shit in a drawer marked potentially important stuff. Come on. And also, who cares if his organs were damaged? It's not like anyone would be seeing the organs. Dr. Gregory Schmunk, the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners, told CNN, I have never heard of this practice. Oh, you mean they don't teach you to crumple up old newspaper and stuff it into a body at preparing a body for a funeral school? Schmunk said that even if further investigation or examination is needed on the organs, one organ is kept behind, not all of them. In a normal embalming procedure, dusting the inside of the body with a hardening compound or embalming powder and then filling it with dry, clean sawdust or cotton mixed with a small quantity of hardening compound or embalming powder is what's done, especially if there are organs missing. But filling a body with newspaper and then lying and saying the organs were placed back in the body is not standard practice. It's also not illegal, but I would file that under no one ever thought they had to explicitly tell professional morticians they can't treat bodies like a recycling bin. But here we are. Regardless, it's definitely not included in any official embalming practice guidelines. Also inexplicably missing were Kendrick's clothes. Normally, when a body is returned to a family after autopsy, it is returned with a bag of the person's belongings that were with them when they were found. The funeral home director said that when he received Kendrick's body, it was naked, and the only other item given to him was a pair of broken headphones. It's sort of Forensics 101 to keep clothing as potential evidence. You only need to watch one episode of Forensic Files to know that stains from bodily fluids, hairs, and fibers can all provide vital clues when you're trying to figure out how someone died. So where were Kendrick's clothes? Also, according to CNN, some witnesses weren't interviewed for days, weeks, or months following the discovery of Kendrick's body on January 11th. Of the 111 witnesses interviewed about Kendrick's death, only 18 were interviewed the day of. And one person was interviewed in May. That means between January 11th and sometime in May, 92 people were interviewed after the event occurred, some long after. The first responders weren't interviewed until April 17th. We all know by now how unreliable the human brain is at retaining facts. Asking someone to recall the events of a month ago is hard. Even if the event was huge and you're sure it was seared into their memory, they're going to remember things wrong. Important things. At this point, not surprisingly, Kendrick Johnson's parents were having trouble accepting the GBI's findings. There were too many things that weren't lining up. So, the Johnsons hired prominent civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump. Here's something super weird Benjamin Crump found out during his investigation. 
The surveillance footage used by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to support their conclusion that Kendrick died by accident, that surveillance footage was not obtained by the GBI. Rather, it was provided to the GBI by the school district. And not only that, but the school district got to decide what they did and did not want to provide. Basically, the investigator should have gone to the school district and confiscated the entire digital video recording system. But instead, they made a request for footage from that wing of the school, and only that wing, for the time in question and the 48 hours leading up to it. It took the school district five days to provide a hard drive with the footage that, after independent investigation, seems to be missing a lot of information. For example, in all four videos from the four cameras that cover the gym, there's a gap in footage of one to two hours. The timestamp from two of the cameras jumps from 11.05 a.m. to 1.15 and 1.16 p.m. respectively. And the timestamp from the other two cameras goes from 12.05 p.m. to 1.09 p.m., which is when Kendrick Johnson was last seen crossing the gym. There's more gaps in the footage over the next few hours, and there's no footage of the discovery of Kendrick's body. The next time we see Kendrick on surveillance, his body is being wheeled out of the gym in a body bag. What happened during that gap in footage? Was it just a weird camera malfunction that affected all four cameras at once? That seems unlikely. The cameras were motion-censored, and footage from right outside the gym during that two-hour gap shows plenty of kids entering and exiting the gym. So the cameras inside the gym would have been switched on with their movement. Was it a weird malfunction in the timestamp data? No, because then we would have seen kids entering the gym from the hallway camera actually in the gym in a pretty continuous shot. Even if the timestamp was wrong, you could piece together the events and what time they actually happened. So, now we have organs, clothes, physical evidence from the scene of the incident, and footage missing. It's not hard to understand why Kendrick's family began to suspect a cover-up. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck... In the words of attorney Benjamin Crump, at best it was incompetence, at worst it was some conspiracy to conceal the truth. And so, in June of 2015, the Johnsons filed a wrongful death suit claiming that Kendrick was beaten to death by several former classmates. And they believed they had the evidence to prove it. Now, here's where it's important to point out that Kendrick Johnson was black. The students implicated in the Johnsons' lawsuit are white. It seems as if this accusation started out as a rumor that had already begun to spread around the school and the community a week after Kendrick's death. It's unclear whether the rumor sparked the Johnson's suspicions or if the Johnson's suspicions sparked the rumor. Ebony Magazine ran two pieces about the case, making heavy accusations that some have claimed to be false, aimed at the Bell brothers, the younger of whom was a schoolmate of Kendrick's and the older of whom had gone to Lowndes High but had already graduated. According to Ebony Magazine, the Bells had a score to settle with Kendrick from a fight that took place about a year and a half earlier on a school bus. 
According to the articles and Kendrick's mother, Jackie, the younger Bell brother assaulted her son on the school bus, and she said he had a history of provoking and attacking Kendrick. Jackie claimed to have made the school aware of the ongoing victimization of her son by Bell, which sometimes occurred in front of coaching staff and school employees, she said. And the school never properly followed up on these reports or looked into them at all. When investigators approached both of the Bell boys for interviews, they refused. Their father, a former FBI agent, had apparently instructed them not to give a statement or cooperate with the investigation. The Johnson suit accused not only the Bell brothers, but their father as well, claiming that the boys murdered Kendrick on command from their father. But according to the Bell's mother, Karen, her younger son and Kendrick were good friends. Good enough friends that, she pointed out, Kendrick had once spent the entire weekend at their house. The fight on the school bus, she assumed, must have been in reference to a minor scuffle the boys had, quote, in the way teenage boys do when they're on their way to a high-stakes football game. You know, boys will be boys and push and punch each other when they're stressed out about sports that are about pushing and punching each other. Yes, yes, I know there's no punching allowed in football. Karen said the two boys laughed and shook hands about it later. Still, because of the fight, they had both been banned from riding the school bus home from that football game that night. And despite how close her son and Kendrick had been, they did not offer to give Kendrick a ride home. Kendrick had to bum a ride home with a school security officer. Karen said she didn't know Kendrick was without a ride home or she would have offered him one. But, I don't know, that seems weird. Your kid's friend is kicked off the school bus home and you don't, like, check to see if he needs a ride? To me, that means either A, Karen was lying about how bad the fight was and it was bad enough that the Bells were unwilling to give Kendrick a ride home, or B, they honestly didn't know that Kendrick didn't have a ride home, which isn't sinister so much as it is inattentive and pretty unkind. Karen claimed the reason her husband instructed the boys not to cooperate with the investigation was because the rumors had already started to fly about their guilt, which is also why, she said, her younger son, the one who was such good friends with Kendrick, didn't go to Kendrick's funeral. Call me crazy, but if someone were accusing my son of murder and I knew it wasn't true, I would want to get ahead of that real quick volunteer to speak to investigators, go to the funeral, and put out a very heartfelt statement too sweet. And, like, I feel like if you're not known for murdering people, it's just very much out of the realm of possibility that people would think you murdered someone. And when your friend just died, you're probably pretty preoccupied with that. Not thinking, well, I know I didn't kill him, but if everyone else thinks I did, I guess I should stay away. Surveillance footage of the school from the day Kendrick died shows the older Bell brother at the school, ostensibly for a wrestling match, which is odd because I'm pretty sure once you graduate high school, you're no longer on the high school wrestling team. 
Can someone fact check that for me? We don't know what time the brother was at the school because the integrity of the surveillance footage is so deeply in question. More than that, the timing of when the bus that would have taken the older Bell kid to his wrestling match in Macon, Georgia, is less than clear. Some students said it left campus, with Bell on it, at 10.30 a.m. The bus driver told investigators they left at 12.30 p.m., and the actual school bus schedule has the bus leaving campus at 4.30 p.m., three hours after Kendrick was last seen alive. So, there you go. Lyons High is a time warp. The wrestling coach said the official bus schedule was inaccurate, and cell phone records for the coach who was on the bus show the last call from Valdosta was at 11.28 a.m. By 1.53 p.m., the cell phone pinged a tower nearly 90 miles away from Valdosta. Kendrick was last seen alive in the gym at 1.09 p.m., and the older Bell would have had to have been on the bus about 45 minutes away from school at that time. An employee at the hotel the team was staying at said they checked in at 4 p.m. Now look, you know me, I'm no geographer, but I can do a Google Maps search. Macon, Georgia is at most a three-hour drive from Valdosta. So let's go ahead and assume the bus did not leave campus at 10.30, unless it literally took them five and a half hours to do a three-hour drive. Even leaving at 12.30 would have given them ample time to check in at 4 p.m. in Macon. As far as anyone knows, there wasn't incredible traffic. The bus didn't break down on the way. The bus could have left at 1.30 and made it to Macon by 4. And we all know cell phone tower pings have been known to be not totally accurate all the time. However, in this scenario, we are asked to believe that the Bell brothers beat someone to death and then lifted a 160-pound body and placed it in a nearly 7-foot-tall gym mat, and then one of them continued on his day at school and the other one just got on a bus and went to a wrestling match? And they did this without anyone noticing? Possibly not. The Johnson suit implicated nearly 40 other people in Kendrick's death, which then means that all those people, including other teenagers, had to remain silent, and that they have remained silent until this day. I know some people are sociopaths, but I refuse to believe that the prevalence of sociopaths is so high that a whole group of teenagers can participate in a murder or its cover-up without one of them eventually folding under the weight of their own conscience. The Bells sued Ebony Magazine, settling for $500,000. The older Bell brother ended up losing his spot at Florida State due to the suspicion of his guilt, and the younger one, according to his mother, became agoraphobic and generally scared and timid. And that's really sad, but at the end of the day, it's not as bad as being dead. And as distressed as Karen Bell might say this ordeal made her and her family, it can't be anywhere near the level of distress and trauma experienced by the Johnson family, who have been left to wonder how their precious child ended up dead in such a gruesome and awful way, and why the investigation into his death was handled so poorly on so many different levels. 
While the Johnsons pursued their lawsuit, a three-year independent federal investigation took place with nearly 100 people interviewed, tens of thousands of texts and emails reviewed, and all other available evidence reviewed. An independent medical examiner from the Department of Justice reviewed all the relevant medical records, as well as both autopsy reports. But in the end, quote, federal investigators determined that there was insufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone or some group of people willfully violated Kendrick Johnson's civil rights or committed any other prosecutable federal crime. They also couldn't definitively say how Kendrick died. The door is still open for a state investigation to rule Kendrick's death a murder. However, one week before the DOJ announced their findings, a judge dismissed the Johnsons' wrongful death lawsuit claiming the two brothers had murdered their son. In November of 2020, Kendrick's parents appealed to the new Lowndes County Sheriff, Ashley Polk. And in March of 21, Polk decided to reopen the investigation. Polk says he is determined to remain neutral, approaching the 17 boxes of written and electronic evidence his office has received from the federal investigation with as clean a slate as possible. My plan, Polk said, is to see if there are any discrepancies between the reports. And, as we know, there are quite a few. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Do you believe in life after death? Do you think it's possible to cross over to the other side and come back? I'll tell you three stories about people who say this happened to them. Two of them went to heaven, and one went someplace else. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thanks for checking out this episode of Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Strange and Unexplained is a podcast about all the things that make us wonder. Each week, Daisy looks at real stories of hauntings, UFO encounters, the Bermuda Triangle, unsolved murders and disappearances, and anything else that feels just beyond what we can easily make sense of. Daisy is your guide into these stories, but she's also like, show me the receipts. If you enjoyed this episode, there are almost 25 more for you to binge right this second. You can find and follow Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan wherever you listen to podcasts.